Greetings, my friends. I told Todd not to read the entire passage uh, of the prodigal son, uh, but the, the last two as he did. Uh, we will look at the entire parable, but as you know, as we looked at last week, Jesus, in chapter 15, verse 3, he says, it says, he told them this parable, and he tells three. Each one is saying the same thing. The third one, in this parabolic discourse, we might say, uh, has that kicker at the end. There's another person in it that's not in the first two parables. The first parable is about a shepherd who leaves, he has 100 sheep, he leaves 99 of them to go find the wandering sheep, and he goes out and rescues the sheep that could never be found without him looking. The sheep wasn't going to look for the shepherd. The sheep will die. Jesus, it's a picture of Jesus going and finding his own. Remember, God finds us, we don't find God. He's not lost, we are. And so there's a great celebration. The shepherd finds the sheep, puts the sheep on his back, goes back, and there's a great celebration, great joy. Jesus is saying this, not only does he go out to find the lost, there is great joy over one sinner that repents. In the second parable, it's likewise, but it's about coins. It's a woman who has 10 coins, very valuable to her. One is lost somehow. She searches and finds it. And once she does, she invites her neighbors. And there's a great celebration over the lost. Again, a picture of something that is lost that will not find itself. Coins don't look for its, their masters, their owners, I should say. And the, the owner finds it. There's great rejoicing. Mind you, that what runs and fuels these parables are in chapter 15, right there in our context, in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to him, here is to Jesus, to listen to him. So Jesus is teaching and all of the rabble of society are surrounding him. The worst of the worst. You might come to such a church and say, I don't want to hang with them. If this church has those people in it, if that's your attitude, then you know who you are. This is for you. Because Jesus has no problem hanging with these people. These are the lost. These people, these tax collectors, the lowest of the low in Israel, and the sinners, which would include prostitutes and everything else we consider horrible, terrible sinning people, Jesus is not repelled by them. They're the lost sheep. They're the lost coin. He goes after them. Note verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, if you don't know who they are, those are the, the law-keeping, very distinguished men of Israel who are the religious leaders. The Israelites look to these men as their leaders. They're their teachers. They're pastors. What the scribes and the Pharisees say, that's what we believe. Well, they believe that tax collectors and sinners are beyond hope. Jesus does not. So while Jesus is dealing with those that they think are beyond hope, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus tells the first parable, guy goes out, finds a sheep, there's great rejoicing. In other words, a tax collector has come to faith in Christ. A prostitute has come to faith and is now saved, there's great joy. The scribes and Pharisees would say, oh, no, 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 no. Those people cannot be saved. We don't want to spend eternity with them in the first place. All of that is all part of the same discourse Jesus gives when he gets to this third parable, a very well-known, famous parable, typically called the prodigal son. 
But the prodigal son, if your caption in your Bible says the prodigal son, that's just one person of the three characters. And the the emphasis is usually on that prodigal son, but the emphasis needs to be on all three because all three teach us some amazing and wonderful lessons. I was looking for a better word than lessons, but that's all that came out. Sometimes it just hits a brick wall. He said, a man had two sons. So there's a man, and he's got two sons. By the way, let me preface this by saying, in this society, much like our own, less and less our own, everything about what they do concerns honor and shame. A shame-related culture, if you do something, that's shameful. Shameful people we have no, no time for. Tax collectors, sinners were shameful. They were on the shameful side of society. Honorable people were like the scribes and the Pharisees. They do the right things. They say the right things. They're at all the right places. They avoid all the wrong places. Honorable people. They look good. They wear long robes that cover their bodies, robes of honor. They wear rings. They wear shoes. Not everyone wore shoes. They were the honorable ones. So in this shame and honor society, Jesus tells a story. By the way, this story, you and I will read it if you've read it throughout the years of your your time being a Christian. Maybe you've read it a hundred times or more. I want you to perhaps see, maybe pray that God will help you see something you haven't seen before. Because there is more here than meets the eye. In this honor-shame society, Jesus is going to tell a story that's going to be absolutely flabbergasting to the scribes and Pharisees. They're going to be offended from the get-go. You and I are reading a story. Go, okay, that looks good. That's, That's cool. Hey, I relate to that prodigal. I was one of those people and came back. Not to them. They're hearing this story and they would be appalled. At everything about this story. Note that. Man had two sons. The younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Deplorable request. In other words, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't have time for you to die to collect my inheritance. Sell to me what's mine from the property. I'm leaving. Horrible, shameful activity of a young man. By the way, in a, uh, when a father died, his wealth went to his children. Uh, the firstborn son got two-thirds of the estate. I say two-thirds, would get a double portion. So if there's just two sons, there's, he gets two-thirds, and the second son is going to get a third of the estate, at least in this case. If there were daughters, uh, the firstborn would still get a double portion of what dad has, and then the secondborn and the daughters would divvy up what's left between them. By the way, that's not a, a, a modern-day application. There's nothing to that. Don't think you're being biblical by leaving your firstborn two-thirds. And, and by the way, I've got an axe to grind. I'm the firstborn. I should be pounding this into my mom. <laughs> but it's not a New Testament concept, uh, nor, is it, nor is there an application in it. Well, we're going to give our son that. No, that, that's, that's not the way it works. It was in Israel. So this son is essentially telling dad, dad, sell that portion of the property out there that's mine. Sell it to somebody. Give me the money or whatever it is you get for it, 10 head of cattle or whatever it might be. It wasn't necessarily a big uh, money and cash society, but maybe he liquidated it and it became, let's call it cash for our purposes today. The dad would have said, okay, I was going to give you that one-third portion of the property out in the outlying area, and that's going to be yours. I'll sell it to this guy down the street. He'll come over, pay the money, and I'll give you the money. Now, when the dad died, that portion of land would be that man's who bought it. But the son takes his, his money, and he goes. The, the Pharisees and the scribes at this point are going to be completely miffed. 
It says, so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there, all it says is that he squandered his estate with loose living. Loose living would be very spending everything. Uh, We're not told what he spent it on. His brother later on in verse 30 assumes that he spent it on prostitutes. It never says that. It's it's just a parable. This didn't happen per se, but Jesus is giving an illustration to show the scribes and the Pharisees how wicked they really are. Just want you to know that up front. So he goes off, spends it all on on loose living, either morally or, or physically or both. Squandered it as... Young, immature uh, people can be. You might have been one of those people. I I always think of it when I think of this. I think of you take some kid with a great athletic talent who comes out of college, graduates or doesn't graduate uh, out of his sophomore or junior years, drafted into the NFL or Major League Baseball. Uh, They have no wisdom whatsoever. The only thing they know is a sport. They're really good. They're usually tall and muscular and handsome, and so they're in a world without wisdom and a lot of money, big contracts. So the only thing that can make this worse is a a young person with no wisdom and a lot of money, and that's what we have here. To wish that on your children, folks, I don't think is a very loving thing. I want my kid to play Major League Baseball and go through all the minor leagues and live all that profligate lifestyle and maybe make it one day, sign a big contract and still be 24 years old and have lots of money, no wisdom, and absolutely no salvation in Christ. Be careful what you wish for. This guy takes it. He's got it. By the way, the Old Testament, I'm just going to read to you what you do with such a son It's from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. Just listen to me. It says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, some of you rebellious sons and daughters, listen up. And when they chastise him, he will not listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Note this. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death so that you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear it and fear. So as the scribes and Pharisees are hearing this appalling story, if they know their Old Testament and every Pharisee and scribe did, they're going, this boy deserves one thing, death. Death by stoning. That's how... That's how seriously, the Lord God Almighty took rebellious children. Today, parents just let these kids walk all over them. So he spends it on loose living, verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. Now, when the word famine appears in the Bible, famine, we don't necessarily know what famine is. I mean, we know what it is in, in theory. We've read about it. But famine was a, is a hard Horrible, harsh word. Think of it today, it would be equivalent to losing your internet. (laughs) Most of you wouldn't know how to be able to live life. Famine would mean there's no water, the crops are not going to grow, Walmart super is no longer has any food, HEB is shut down, there's nowhere to go, there's no food. What do people do when there's no food? They eat bark. They eat pieces of leather. They eat the dead. They drink their own urine. If that's all there is, 
That's all you can do. So there's this great famine that comes upon. Scribes and Pharisees are thinking, well, he deserves this. He'd spent everything. A severe famine occurred in that country because he's gone far away into another country. If he left an Israelite country, that would be the implication. He's gone out to a Gentile country. And he began to be impoverished. That means he's lost everything. He's living in poverty. He had everything. Now he has nothing. So verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. So a Jewish person would hire himself out to a Gentile. And this Gentile says, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. If you know anything about the Old Testament and Judaism, the most unclean creature on the planet is a pig. Swine. And you don't have to be Jewish to consider these animals unclean. Uh, If you've ever shot one in the wild, uh, you go out to field dress it and you go, "Uh, never mind. (laughs) There's ticks all over it. It's the most bizarre, filthy creature. And you're thinking, I'm just going to go home and eat the bacon that's already cut. (laughs) It is a horribly filthy animal. And yet that is who he is. That is the only thing, the only job he can get is to go feed these animals Goes out into his fields to feed swine. Perhaps the, uh, the Gentile employer throws him out there and says, yeah, we'll see how a good Jew boy works out there. Note, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods, the carob pods, that the swine were eating. Have you ever watched a pig eat or pigs eat? It's, and I'm not talking about ladies, I'm not talking about your husbands. <laughs> Literally watched pigs eat. It's an amazing thing. Anything goes. Anything in there. And I mean anything. They eat anything. This is the filthiest animal on the planet. This guy is so hungry, he's looking at their foods going, now that looks good. I've heard stories of what what, uh, starving people will eat and what looks good. It's not about taste. It's just about survival. He's slipped into what we have here is a condition of total and complete depravity and despair. And Jesus has given us a picture here of complete and total depravity of the human race. That's what we are. We're born this way, by the way. This is where we go. This is what our our natural instinct is. I've got a lot of money. I'm going to go spend it on myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm tired of mom and dad's restrictions. I'm tired of God's restrictions. I'm going to go live life on my terms. Maybe that was you. Maybe it's something that you're thinking about doing. Uh, You'll never meet anyone. You'll never read an account where someone says, hey, that was a really good idea. I've never never read a testimony where someone wrote uh, about how they came to know Christ and they said, I'm really glad I did that. Those were good times. Those who are not saved will look back and say those were good times. God has not brought them to the end of themselves. We all have to come to, as I say, the end of ourselves. Where we realize, look, everything I do is wrong. Every decision I make is wrong. There's a sitcom that, that, that plays on this. I won't tell you what it is because you will maybe not like me anymore, assuming you like me at all. But where there's one where the, the main character says, look, every decision you've ever made has been wrong. So the exact opposite in theory, would be the right decision. You and I are that way. Everything we do is based upon what we want. That's our selfish nature. That's what we we want to fulfill our dreams. 
We want to do what we want to do. Some people leave their spouse to say, I'm not interested in being married anymore. I'm not being fulfilled. I'm going to go out and be fulfilled. I want to be happy. A child here, I'm no longer happy in my dad's house on this estate where I have everything. I'm going to go do things my way. Doesn't take long for he loses everything. And so God is showing us here a person at the end of themselves looking at food. And at this point, he has become so disgusted with himself. That's what verse 16 says. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. and No one was giving him anything. Nothing. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, that's when a person becomes so disgusted with their lives, with their decisions, with the situation they've put themselves in. They're tired of shaking their fist at God because they know deep down that God didn't do this to them. They did it to themselves. When you become so disgusted with your decisions and your way of life, you perhaps will come to yourself. That's what he says here. You will, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he apparently had senses. He had some notion of, this is ridiculous. Look at where my life has taken me. There's some of you, maybe, you came here today. That's where you are today. Your life has brought you nothing, nothing but unfulfilled dreams. You're angry. You're depressed. I, I got news, bad news for you. No pill, no beverage will fix this. Yes, you're depressed. Of course you're depressed. Yes, you're feeling anxious. Yes, you're looking for answers, going to psychiatrists and looking online and reading articles. Yes, you're doing that because you are at the end of your rope, but none of those things will fix you. None of them. They're not designed to. He said when he comes to his senses in verse 17, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm here dying of hunger? Now, a hired man, his, his father had slaves, servants. They worked for him. They were employees of dad. But men who owned estates like this young boy's father also had day laborers. You have your, your servants who come to work every day, maybe live on the property. And then you have day laborers. You go out and you hire them. I'm going to hire you for the day, pay you this. Hire you for a day, pay you that. Whatever I think is fair. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the servants He's talking about the day laborers, the lowest on the totem pole of workers. He's thinking, these guys, those hired men, they've got more than enough bread. I'm here dying of hunger. So because he is truly sorry for what he's done, note that, because he's truly sorry for what he's done, because God has brought him to repentance. By the way, anytime you repent, turn from your ways, you're thinking like this selfishly, and you begin to think towards God and, and logically, that's God. All glory to God. He's the one that turned you. Because not all prodigals, that word prodigal means someone who is completely um, uh, bereft of anything logical in his mind or her mind. They are bereft of any understanding of truth. They've thrown it out the window. That's what he is. That's what a prodigal is. Now he's come to his senses. God has stirred it in him. Not all of them come to this place. But God's chosen children do. 
You think, why doesn't everyone come to this place and see this? Because not all have been chosen to do so. This particular one does. And he says, how many of my father's hired men? They've all got enough. Here I am starving to death. And so he begins to work on his repentance speech. All right. He's not regretting mistakes. He has come to the end of himself. He's not going to go to dad and say, dad, I made some mistakes. I hope we can get past it. Look at what he does say. Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. By the way, a Jew would never say God. So heaven is just a a, a, a figure of speech for God. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's pretty good. The confession is starting off well. I've sinned. I didn't make a mistake. I didn't do, act unwisely. I have sinned. I have completely offended God and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy. He doesn't say, I'm going to go back and say, Dad, remember I, I am the, the, the son, that cute little boy that, that, that mom had and you all loved me. Remember those days? No. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That's a day labor. Give me a day-to-day job. That's all I'm asking. I'm not coming in and saying I'm your son. I'm no longer your son. I'm not coming in and saying I've made some mistakes. I've gone way beyond that. I think this is a picture of what it means to really repent. I have counseled people through the years. Those that have committed adulteries. Those who have done uh, horrible things that I can't say nor nor would I say. And I wait to hear that repentant speech most of the time. Throughout my 30 plus years of counseling, it's just, uh, I went out and sowed some wild oats. I'm not proud of it. That's the best I typically get. I try to get one spouse who's cheated on another to, to go into the same room with the spouse and tell that spouse, here's what I did. You know what I did. I know what I did. I want to put in words that, so that you know that I know what I did. What I did to God, what I did to you, what I did to my children. I'm not worthy to be called your husband. I'm not worthy to be in the same room as you. All I'm asking is that we could have some sort of a friendly relationship so I can see my kids, something like that. That's not what I get. And and I always know it's not true. I always know this is not going to be reconciled. When the person just says, you know what, that you did this and you led me to that and, and I wanted this and I was immature. No. Folks, own your sin. Own it. You did it. No one else made you do it. And for you victim card players, put that victim card up, burn it. Well, you don't know what I've been through. I was abused sexually, physically. My mama didn't like me. My daddy left me. That's a horrible story. Those are terrible stories. But that is not your excuse to get away with everything you do. You you can get sympathy for that. That's a horrible thing. But God has obviously allowed it for his sovereign purposes. Give him the glory and stop playing the victim card. This boy could have said, Dad, look, you made me a spoiled brat kid and all I did was fall into that trap. You gave me everything. I needed to go out and see what it was like to have nothing and now I get it, so can we just forget all that happened? He doesn't do that. We see real repentance here. 
Don't miss that. Make me as one of your hired men. This is all his rehearsed speech. So he got up, verse 20. He came to his father. The, the Pharisees at this point, listening to this story, no doubt are grumbling. What? This is ridiculous. When that boy gets home, I hope that story, as the story unfolds, the Pharisee might have been saying that he's going to be beaten and, and killed as he should have been before. So he got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The Pharisees at this point, if they would have been drinking a drink, would have thrown it to the ground. What did you just say? There is no way this story is happening. This is outrageous. The father saw him means he's looking for him from a long way out. It's not like the boy came to the door. It's not like the father was out uh, supervising the other servants and, and the boy tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, there you are. He's out perhaps outside the city looking for his son to walk over the horizon. And he does. No doubt praying for him. Not hating him. He didn't say, you are dead to me. By the way, this doesn't just work with fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. This works with friends and people who have hurt us. I want you to put that in there. He saw him. Here he comes. I imagine he couldn't even recognize him. The filth the boy was in. There's no showers back then. Maybe the boy had said, I'll try to dip in this, in this uh, uh, river so that when I get to dad, I don't smell like pigs. You ever seen somebody filthy? I mean, I'll work out in the day, you know, my wife will come hug me because she always wants to hug me. She can't, she's just obsessed with me. <laughs> She'll come hug me, look, I'm sweaty. You know, get away. Ew, sticky, sweaty. Ew. Something about sweat. This guy's beyond sweat. You don't want to touch somebody who's all sweaty. Or if you've been digging in the garden, you've got all grimy nails or everything. This guy's worse than that, and dad falls upon him. He sees him coming, but he doesn't wait for the boy to get to him. He felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He ran. Dad ran. There's an old Christian song by Benny Hester called God Ran. And he wrote it after this. God Ran. My understanding of the study of this passage is that Middle Eastern noblemen do not run. We might picture this guy like looking one of us. He's got his shorts on, his Nike running shoes. There's my son and he beelines for his son. Not the case. A Middle Eastern nobleman of this man's character would have a long robe of honor. And they didn't wear shorts anyway. Even if it wasn't a robe, it would have been a long cloak. The only way to run would be to lift the robe up above, right around your, your, uh, your midsection, so to unfetter your legs and take off. No one shows in Middle Eastern society their skin. Not men, not women. A man to show me. How many of you are really like to see a man's leg, especially an old, older guy? Little sticks coming out, you know? you know? Mine are getting that way. I'm losing the hair on the sides of them. I mean, I got this hair, but my legs are going hairless. I don't, 
you need to cover those things. I'll tell my dad that all the time. Dad, cover the legs. You know, you're 75 years old. Cover them. Now I got his legs, unfortunately. So I got to take my own advice. But it, it was uncouth. So the Pharisees would be thinking again, no, 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 no. There's no way the guy runs. But in his efforts to meet his son, the father becomes a prodigal himself. How so? Because now he has fallen into the shame category within this story. Not only has he not killed his son, not only is he looking for his son and showing compassion towards his son, which the scribes and Pharisees would never do, as seen earlier in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. They hated the tax collectors and sinners. This man humiliates himself to go meet his son. And so for a time, we might say, that the focus has come off of the son, all the shame on the son walking back into town. The father has now taken the shame upon himself. How about that? What are you thinking about? Our Lord and Savior taking the shame of mankind upon himself. He died upon that cross without any clothing on He was beaten, abused, spit upon, called names, and they laughed at him until he died, bearing your shame and my shame. This is the father, humiliating himself, bringing the focus to himself, and he embraces the son. The son doesn't say, Dad, I'm all sweaty. He just embraces him. The son is probably dumbfounded, and then he kisses him, be this affectionate kiss on the cheek, The son said to him, breaks out into his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven, again, against God, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Boom, that's all he gets to. He doesn't get to finish his speech because his speech had far more in it earlier when he says, here's what I'm going to say. I want to be hired, blah, 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 just a hired man. I'm going to my father. I'll say I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. He doesn't even get there. Let me just make a point real quick. When someone who sinned against you that you know they've sinned, you know they've offended you. Be ready to forgive right away. And when they begin their repentance spiel, cut them off. Don't let them finish. Let the forgiveness get there and be received before they even finish. Some of you, some, would certainly wait. Mm Mm-hmm, okay. Okay, anything else? Okay. Tell me again what you're sorry for. Mm, You didn't mention, you remember this, this, and this. Folks, you're not forgiveness. You're not going to forgive. You're waiting to be worshipped. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness, you might not ever be able to grant it because the person who sinned against you might never come to you. But if it's there in your heart to give, You've gone as far as you can go. It's there. You're not going to treat them with disdain. You're not going to hurt them. You're not going to get even. It's there. And when they come, look, we need to talk. And I've got to tell you, that's it. Say no more. Forgiveness granted. Done. We don't need to rehash all this. In a marriage, ladies, men, some of you, the word sorry tastes like carob pods coming out of your mouth. You would never say it. By the way, carob pods taste terrible. Just to say I'm sorry. You've said it three times in your life. And you think that's enough. 
You need to go around with a bag of sorries. Sorry, 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 sorry. Say sorry before you've done anything wrong. Practice saying you're sorry. As practice, you should practice saying, I love you, not only to your spouse, but to God himself. I love you, Lord. I'm sorry. But if they don't mean anything, they don't say them at all. This is what this man is trying to say. He's trying to say, I'm sorry, but the father says, no. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, underline that word, quickly, quickly bring it. Don't draw it out. Don't bring the son home and wait to see if he's really repentant. Do it now. That's what salvation is. The moment we repent, the moment, quickly, done, signed, sealed, delivered, forgiveness, granted, the stamp, the Spirit of God lives in you. Quickly, bring out the best robe. Robes were for people of royalty, noblemen. Put a robe of royalty, of importance on this boy. Of course, the scribes and Pharisees at this point are going, this is now beyond, this is like uh, an R-rated movie. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Do it quickly. Put a ring on his hand. Now, this is not the Astros 2022 um, uh, replica World Series ring type thing. Go bring a really nice shiny ring. No, the ring in this society is the signature. It's called a signet ring. You'd put it on your hand, and you would make business transactions. Today, we sign our name, maybe get a notarization. Back then, you had a ring. If you did the family business, it had a seal, and you stamped in in a wax document. There's the stamp of the family approval. That's the signature. Signed in blood, as it were. In other words, bring the best robe, show everyone that this man is royalty, put a ring on his finger, ring on his hand, to show that he has the family authority, and put sandals on his feet. Poor people wore sandals. This man, there's really nothing more there than most people wear nothing on their feet, put sandals on my boy's feet. Isn't that what God does to us and for us when we come to salvation? He doesn't just say, you know what, you got a few years to go. I know you made a profession of faith and you got baptized, but let's just see how you grow. God adorns us with everything he has. Royalty. We can speak. Our signet ring is we can speak in the name of God. I can tell you, in the name of God, this is what God says, this is what God means, and this is what we do with it. The authority of God comes to his people. We are not to walk around, this doesn't have anything to do with, with being poor per se, but sandals on our feet makes us special. You don't need to go around telling everybody, I'm special. Nothing special about those people. It's just God cleansing us and clothing us with his glory. I love that. And I love to read it because I have to be reminded of it. And I also want you to note this. Please don't miss this. Because when we sin against God, we typically think that we come back to a God that's doing something like this. You did it again. A scowl on his face. Again, Lance? Really? And you're going to come to me in prayer again? Really? That's not the way it is. Every time we sin and we come back to God in true repentance, we come back to a grin, 
and arms open wide. Do not misinterpret that. If you think you're coming back to a scowling God, you don't know God. And I'm telling you who he is. This is a God from this passage and all throughout the Bible. When we repent, now I'm not saying he's back there going, I love it when you get out there, you prodigals, and you live in squalor. I love it. He's not, doing, not saying that. He's not saying it's a good thing that you're living in sin because you'll repent one day. He's not saying that. All it says here is that when we repent, we come back to a God who is loving and welcoming. Take that scowl off of his face because it ain't there. Clothe him with glory. And bring in the fat, bring, a, bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Well, that fits everything that the two previous parables said. This wasn't a meat-eating society, at least not every meal, not like we have it. The fattened calf was special. And the fattened calf was actually for, typically for, the, the, a wedding celebration, which was the biggest of celebrations in Israel, other than the Israeli celebrations of the Old Testament. Bring out the best one. Bring out the filet mignon and all the best food. We're going to have a celebration. Kill that fattened calf. Let us eat and celebrate. Well, that's what happened in the previous ones. That which is lost is found, and there's a great celebration. The father explains in verse 24, For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. Now we know he wasn't dead. Dead people don't do anything. So he's speaking of deadness in a spiritual sense. We're all born spiritually dead. That's why as, as, a, as Todd prayed in the passage that closed this out from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are made alive by Christ. He makes us alive. We don't decide to come to life because dead people don't decide anything. That's why I must believe in the doctrine of election. That's why I must believe in the sovereignty of God because I'm spiritually dead. And spiritually dead people cannot, do not, will not make spiritual decisions. That is God's prerogative. That's why we give Him all glory. He was dead. This son of mine was dead, has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. The boy has come to a place where in, chap in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus tells the uh, disciples, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This man now hates his own life. And in the hatred of his life, he loves his father. He loves God more. Now that's where the story should end. The story should be over at this point because he's just told the same story that he told previous. Now, mind you, there were 99 sheep, one out of 99 sheep. Not a big deal, not a huge loss. And it's a sheep anyway. And then you've got one out of 10 coins in the second parable, verses 8 to 10. One coin, that's 10%. One was one one-hundredth. The next one is 10%. And it's just a coin. You can live without a coin. In this, it's two sons. It's people. The stakes are much bigger now. And there's great celebration. God celebrates when the lost are found, when those he goes to find when he's successful. But we get a second part of the story here. 
We've seen the prodigal son and even a prodigal father, a father, a prodigal only in the sense that in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, no one would do that. And yet we know that it's within the character of God to do it. Did it for you and me through faith in Jesus Christ. The older son was in the field. By the way, I'm just going to go ahead and give it away. The spoiler alert is the older son represents the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. They're the ones that are angry in chapter 15, verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is who the older son represents. The older son was in the field. If he's in the field, he's out doing his job because that's what this older son does. That's what the scribes and Pharisees do. The scribes and the Pharisees are moral men. They do the right things. You look at them and you go, if anyone's going to be in heaven, it's going to be those moral men. They look good. They talk well. They're very intelligent. They, uh, they do all the right things and don't do all the wrong things. They're moral. That would be the, the uh, Old Testament version of Mormons. This is the older son. He's in the field doing his duty. And when he came in, he approached the house. He was clueless as to what had been going on. And he heard music and dancing. That seems odd for a Tuesday afternoon. Music and dancing in the house. And he summoned one of the servants. Began inquiring what these things could be. I'm trying to find out what's going on. That's why it says began inquiring. I need to, what is, he doesn't just go in and discover it right away. There's a huge celebration here that he's not privy to. And he said to him, the servant would say to the, the older brother, your brother, that would be the younger brother, the prodigal, has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, again, in this shame, honor culture, the story being told to the scribes and Pharisees, you and I are looking at it. I don't know what you think of it, but it's a mundane story. I've heard it a million times. But the scribes and Pharisees hearing this parable are going, no way. No way this has happened. No way that that boy comes back and receives no discipline and gets a party out of it. That's grace. You and I are born sinners, wretched sinners. We sin against a holy God, the holy God, all of our lives. Even when we come to faith in Christ, we're declared righteous. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We're declared righteous through faith in Christ. When we get to heaven, do we really deserve to walk through gates of splendor? If you think you deserve that, you're on the wrong side of faith. Well, of course I deserve it. I've been a good person. No, you haven't. You're not good enough to live in eternity with the holy God. No. You don't understand sin yet. You don't understand your sin. You haven't thought about how wicked you really are. Why would God allow anyone in, especially one like this? The scribes and Pharisees said, no, this man must die. If you're a former Roman Catholic or a present Roman Catholic, uh, this isn't a mortal sin yet. But this would be on the level of a mortal sin. The scribes and Pharisees say, no one gets into heaven who's done what these people have done. Roman Catholicism, a mortal sin would be killing someone, even yourself. You commit suicide, you go straight to hell. You've killed yourself. You kill another human being, you go straight to hell. Or you serve a really, 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 really long time in purgatory. Unless you can get a priest to tell you what you want to hear and give you absolution, give enough money, whatever it might be. I don't mean to sound ugly. That's just the way the, the system works. So the scribes and Pharisees are going to be furious. And that's what happens. The boy hears this. The boy's back. My brother's back safe and sound, and there's a party for him. Verse 28, he became angry. Was not willing to go in. I'm not going in there. 
I'm not celebrating that. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And he answered and said to his father, look. He didn't say, dad, father, look. For so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, we don't know that he did that, he just says that, you killed the fattened calf for him? Let me put it in modern language, best I can. Dude. You don't call your dad dude. Dude. I have spent my entire life serving you day after day in our fields. I never neglected to do a single thing you gave me to do. I did what I did, and you never even said thank you. You never gave me a party. I never got to go here and there. Old man, I will not put up with this. No way I'm coming into that party. You can see here that the boy has no relationship with his father, even though he's been obedient to him. Note that. If you're a legalist, you're jumping through hoops, you're obeying God, and you think you're a really good person. I did this, I did this, I didn't do that and that. Look at me. I'm so much greater than those who do. I don't eat meat on Fridays. I eat fish. And God is in heaven going, because I really need people to eat fish on Fridays. It's so absurd. I got my baby baptized. Yeah, I got water poured over his head. God's in heaven going, what a relief. It's water poured on the head, folks. It doesn't mean a darn thing. Yet if you do it for the purpose of the significance of it, it matters greatly, doesn't it? I have done everything you told me to do. In other words, his relationship with dad is that of an employee. I did this and you owe me. It's what we call a quid pro quo. This for that. I gave you this, you give me that. You didn't, and you gave it to them, him? That horrible brother of mine, old man, dude. This is the last straw. People do that all the time. You find yourself in a hospital bed, and you're thinking, what did I do, Lord? I've been faithful. What did I do to deserve this? Bad things happen to you. Your baby is not born the way you want the baby born. Something's wrong. What do we do, Lord? What did I do to deserve this? I was faithful to you in this. And this is what happens to our baby. I worked for my company for all these years, and this is what I get. I get fired. And then you let me go six months to a year without any reemployment. What's the deal, God? I got married and I'm a good husband and this is the wife you gave me? Really, Lord? This is, these are people that think God is their slave. If you do this, God will do that. What a wicked way of thinking about God. If I pray this, it's like putting my dollar into a vending machine and pulling the lever and getting what I want. I prayed this, I should get that. You don't know prayer, do you? And God will keep giving you nothing to show you what prayer really is. And what it really is, is not a way to change him. It's an avenue through which he changes us. The longer you sit on your knees, 
either literally or figuratively, the more opportunity God has to transform you. You get someone that needs prayer. You go on the, the internet. You go on your email. Please pray for this person. Give them this. Pray this. Pray this. Pray this. Pray that. What if God says no, 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 no? Why not rather pray the will of God and that you will accept the will of God? That's the bigger prayer. But this is what this boy thought, as many people who call themselves Christians think. I did everything I'm supposed to do. It's supposed to come out looking like this, and it didn't. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say when my brother, this son of yours, that boy, when he comes who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You know, if you were to read, if we were to go through, say, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, there's a parable there where Jesus speaks of a man who goes out and hires people to work in his vineyard. He's a landowner. He hires some, someone at 6 in the morning. Come in. I'll pay you a day's wage. Come work in my field. Later, he goes out at 9 a.m. and brings others in. I'll pay you what's fair. He goes out later at noon, brings them in. Each one he goes out later is working less than the previous ones. When the last ones go out, he goes out at the end of the day. They come into the man's vineyard. They work one hour. One hour, and he pays them a denarius, a day's wage. So the guys that work from 6 a.m. onward, when, they're, when it comes time for them to get money, they're expecting to get a lot more, and they only get a denarius too. And they say the same thing. This is not fair. The landowner says, my money, my land. Did I not agree with you for a denarius? Take what's yours and go. But it's those who work longer. It's those people who have been Christians all their lives, for instance, who see someone come to faith on their deathbed who's lived a terribly profligate life. They get saved on their deathbed. They're going, this is not fair. They get the same eternal life as I do, and I've worked my whole life. That's not fair. You're darn tootin' it's not fair. It ain't fair that anybody gets to go. We are wretched sinners being brought in. We are that swine-smelling, filthy, foul person coming into sweet-smelling heaven. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. In other words, you could have had a party with your friends anytime you wanted. You've not lost your inheritance. You've been with me forever. You're faithful in the fields. If you want to have a party, have a party. No one's ever told you no. You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to. Note that. We had to celebrate. When a wretched sinner comes to the end of himself or herself and comes to receive Christ, there has to be a celebration. There has to be. That's what it says. There has to be one. If God's rejoicing in heaven, and he does in the first two parables, in the presence of the angels, we get to do it too. We get to mimic what God is doing by rejoicing. For this brother of yours, well, he says it again, was dead and has begun to live. Was lost, has been found. Story ends there. At least the parable does. I preached this, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. And one guy in the church took exception to the way I ended this, and I'm going to end it the same way. Um, he was wrong. Hopefully he knows that by now. Uh, if you think that my conclusion is wrong, you haven't finished the Gospels. 
The end of the story is that the older son who represents the scribes and the Pharisees grabbed his father, slammed him to the ground, kicked him in the ribs, beat him over the head, spit upon him, and murdered him. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They took Jesus. They betrayed Jesus. They turned him over to the Romans where they beat him, mocked him, spit upon him, and tortured him to death on a cross. That's the end of the story. That's what happened. We would love to see that the boy said, I get it. I get it. Thank you, Father, for your grace. No. This is a story that is fueled by chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to Jesus. Both the scribes and the Pharisees began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And we know they didn't repent. I've read the end of the Gospels. Folks, we are each one of these people. Each one of these people represents us. We are depraved. We come to the end of ourselves. We're like the Father. We show shame. We show grace. We're like that son at the end. We're self-righteous. Ask yourself, do you want to see the lost come to faith? Not just the lost come to faith, but the people that you you hate. You may not want to admit it, but you hate them. Is there someone that you hate that you will be humiliated to see in heaven? What if, what if Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, the worst people among the worst people in the history of the world, what if on their deathbeds they repented of their sins? They came to the end of themselves and they, having killed millions upon millions of innocent people, are living in eternity with Jesus. When you get there, if you see that, if, if that happened, we have no record that they did, by the way. But if they did, would you rejoice in that now? Not if you're a Jewish person, for sure. What if there was a mass murderer out there who used to, to prey upon the weak Kidnap them, abuse them, kill them, and eat them. What if he, before his death, came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Could you rejoice in that? By the way, that man's name is Jeffrey Dahmer. And he's with Jesus now. And that's what he did. I can't begin to tell you in, in public the, the filth and the garbage that he actually did. Can you rejoice in that? He only did what you've considered. He's only, he only did what you and I have the potential for. And God in his grace saved such a one before Dahmer was beaten to death in prison. He was beaten to death in prison. He didn't die by, the, by lethal injection or anything. He was supposed to serve out uh, the rest of his life and he was beaten to death. It's that kind of sinner that we look at as the scribes and Pharisees looked at tax collectors, prostitutes. Can you rejoice? Will you rejoice? Will you go out and talk to such a one and share the Lord Jesus Christ with them as Jesus did? Would you eat with such a one, go into their homes? Or is it more expedient that you hang with the rich, the cool? 
Who repels you? Who are you going to mimic? One repented at the end of his rope and was celebrated. One had compassion and humiliated himself to embrace the horrible one. One continued in his rebellion even though he was morally upright. And if it was a true story, we would see younger son and dad with Jesus and all of their filth and we would see the older son in the pit of hell. There's a lot of people that are going to be the inhabitants of the lake of fire who are the most moral people on the planet. Why is that, Lance? Because being moral doesn't save you. Being moral makes you think you're saved. Being moral makes you self-righteous. Makes you think you have no need for Christ. Unless your morality stems from your love of Christ who set you free. Let's pray. Lord, as we leave, may we rejoice in your grace. May it manifest itself in a song, proper speech, the things we watch, the things we think about, the things we repent of. Cause us to consider if we would reach out to such a one. Create in us a rejoicing, a celebration over the lost coming to know Christ, no matter who they are, no matter what they might have done to us. May we be ready to forgive at a moment's notice, even for someone who might have killed our child, hurt our spouse, or cursed our God. May our forgiveness be ready in our hand ready to hand out as you gave to us and you gave to us quickly quickly upon our profession of faith in Jesus Lord if there be one today who has not done that may this be their day to profess their faith in Jesus the only one who can remove their sins and allow them entry into the eternal kingdom of God it's in Jesus name I pray because I pray for the will of Jesus in his name may your will be done in the name of Jesus we all pray amen may God bless you and keep you you've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, senior pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas 